Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Greetings, comrades, and uh, welcome today to a special episode of the Eastern Border. This is a subject, as you might have noticed from the title, The Old Believers, that I have wanted to do for a while now. The problem is, there aren't actually that many uh, sources about them in Russian, as currently, you know, the Russia is basically run by the Orthodox Church, which have uh, which have basically spread its roots in the state, and the separation between church and state is very, let's just say, non-existent, as they have a law about uh, <clears throat> offending the rights and the beliefs of the believers. So, you know, if you say something that might offend an orthodox believing person in any way or form, then you might just go to prison, which recently happened, as I mentioned in my previous episodes. Uh, I don't know if I said so, but uh, it was the one about the fact that a Russian goth kid basically took a photo section in a in basically a ruin of an Orthodox church, like really ruins which haven't been taken care of for a while, and and she got punished for that, and she got she went to court. But one other thing that might offend them is, like, not only all our liberal, filthy values from the West, but also uh, one other thing, the old believers, which this episode is all about. And as they are not loved, as they are a subsection of the Orthodox Church, or, so to say, schismatics from it, because uh, even though the church wouldn't like you to know about them at all, they are—they exist and they clearly do offend the sensibilities of the Orthodox believers. And the weirdest part is, uh, because of this fact that uh, they're not loved in Russia, I really had to use a lot of English uh, language sources for this for this episode. For example, I had to use Smithsonian.com and I had to use Vice.com and I had to use TheAtlantic.com and some other research sources, as well as our own, our own Latvian ones. The thing is, the old believers are a weird bunch. They are sorta, kinda, like the Amish, except they have been oppressed since uh, the 17th century or so. So, it's a bit crazy, and we have uh, a huge amount of them here. Well, huge is a relative term, of course, but uh, the largest congregation on the planet Earth of these um, old believers are here in Latvia, and they are our own authentic Russian minority. Because, you know, usually when I speak about the Russians living in Latvia, I tend to speak about the kind of the people whom the Soviet Union brought here, forcibly for the most part. But these old believers were here for a while. They, they escaped their persecution and moved to uh, what is now Latvian territory and parts of Lithuanian territory 
because they were escaping persecution and they are our own our own ethnic Russian minority and they are there are a lot of a lot of uh, Russians living here who have come from this from this commune of uh, Russian Orthodox uh, Russian old believer Orthodox people actually don't like these um, how they call them newfangled Russians from the Soviet era. So this episode is dedicated to them, but mostly mentioning the very very weird conditions that they live in and um some real crazy incidents about them because as much as i respect their beliefs they truly stand to um, represent some completely other time and they have lived up until the modern day so this seemed very interesting and we'll move to the style in the next episode but um today Today I want to speak to you about one of the most interesting denominations of the Christian Church that you could ever find in the world. Oh, and by the way, we will mention Alaska too in this episode. So sit back and enjoy this, for once, light-hearted episode of the Eastern Border. So, first of all, we must make sure that we know who the old believers actually are. And, uh... Yeah, this is an interesting story, because uh, at one point, uh, around the middle of the 17th century, basically the Orthodox Church officials, both Greek and Russian, because, you know, the Greek Church was still going on under the Ottoman Empire in Constantinople, which was kind of a multinational thing, if you've listened to other history podcasts, and um, including Patriarch Nikonov Moscow, by the way, who was obviously a Russian, Russian Orthodox leader, they noticed some discrepancies between what was done in Russian churches and what was done in the Greek kind of, you know, churches, because the Orthodox Church is split into patriarchates. There's the Constantinople one, which is supposedly answering about the whole world. It's kind of like the Pope, but not really. And then there are the Autocephalos patriarchs, or kind of more or less autonomous patriarchs, which kind of take care of their own nations, which are like the Popes for certain countries. So you have the Russian Orthodox Church, then you have the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, the Estonian Orthodox Church and everything. And they're kind of tied together because each of these churches has a patriarch, but the patriarch in Constantinople is supposed to be responsible for the whole world. It's kind of like the Orthodox Pope. In a weird way, but not quite, because he doesn't wield as much influence. And, for example, currently the most important patriarch on planet Earth could be the Russian patriarch, because he has the the largest uh, largest amount of people under him. But still, uh, like, all of this is like, uh, kind of, if, if you if you could compare it to states, then Catholicism is more or less like a federation, while the orthodoxy is kind of like confederation with uh, their nominal president, which would be the Greek one, but all the states, all the orthodox states around them have a large degree of autonomy and basically rule over themselves and can, can be even more influential than him. Okay, anyways, the uh, goal here was that both the guys in in Greece, well, at that point, Ottoman Empire, and Moscow notice that what's going on in Orthodox Church in Russia differs a lot from what's going on in Greece. So, the Russian Orthodox Church obviously had become, well, separated from the other Orthodox churches, which were, at that point, uh, run by uh, by the Greeks. Because... 
Like I said, you can become this autocephalous patriarch, but that is not always the case. And where it is not the case, there the Greeks, especially Constantinople, rules in. So, basically, the unrevised Muscovite at the time, well, I'm going to say Russian, but uh, at that point it's just Muscovy, sort of, uh, basically, because it's the patriarchate of Muscovy, they hadn't updated yet to the Russian Tsardom yet. Basically, these uh, these books of uh, of the religion proved to be older than the current, up-to-date Greek books, by the way, because the Greeks in Constantinople had been revising and improving and just, you know, making minor revisions to their liturgical books and, and everything they hold sacred over the centuries. And they contained a lot of innovations, and they were basically, you know, these updated updated versions there. And uh, Patriarch Nikon, he wanted to have the same right in the Russian Tsardom and in majority ethnic Slavic lands, which are now, by the way, territories of the Ukraine and Belarus. Uh, then they were a part of Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And he wanted this in order to basically attract local Orthodox rebels. So that, you know, modern day Putin goes to Crimea, attracts local Russians, then Russia. That basically the same, except they played it on the Orthodoxy. But the problem is that these Orthodox rebels in these lands held by the Lithuanian, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth at the time, they were kind of closer to the Greeks than what had been used, what had been in use in Moscow. So, Nikon did not want to adapt two different rites in the same church, so he decided to act. He was supported in this by Tsar Alexis, which, well, obviously, because, you know, your religious leader wants to unify all the Russian Russian churches into a single updated version of the Orthodoxy, and, you know, you kind of like the idea of Belarusians and Ukrainians joining your country instead of being uh, of that other major contester of the time. So what he did was he sent all over Russia, uh, he sent uh, like requests to their monasteries and to their parishes to basically send examples of their liturgical books, their Bibles and whatever else they had in written form to Moscow in order to then be, to, to be kind of compared, like comparing them and then comparing them to the Greek rites and everything. So obviously this this would have taken a lot of years and obviously it would cause a lot of diversion in all this all this system because um, how the Russian texts uh, developed over the time and like centuries of everything and there were basically no historical techniques of comparative analysis but uh, that really didn't end up too well. This whole thing started in 1652, when he kind of uh, conveyed all the situation, but uh, the locum tenants for Patriarch Petrim of Moscow, like the next patriarch already, uh, these guys who were kind of done with um, comparing all this situation, yeah, they convened in 1,666 Great Moscow Synod. Now, that's a pretty meaningful number, 1,666, and it might seem like weird, why would, why wouldn't they just wait for a year, you know, 666 is this great satanic number, except it really isn't, and, uh, the actual bad number would be 6, 616, not 666, because that's a modern invention, so that explains it a bit. 
Anyway, in this great Moscow synod, uh, Patriarch Makarios III Zaim of Antioch and Patriarch Paisius of Alexandria and a lot of bishops arrive. And they all come to Moscow. And obviously there were accusations of nice bribery because <clears throat> there are rumors that each of the visiting patriarchs received 20,000 rubles in gold and furs for their participation. Like cash, cash, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, amazing. So these guys basically come together and uh, establish new reforms because, you know, they've compared all the Russian texts with the Greek texts and, you know, just scrapped out all the errors and everything. And that would be nice, except they declare uh, aneth, they declare those people who oppose these innovations, and but the old Russian liturgical books and religious rites to be anathema of religion. Which basically means that, you know, we had the Reformation and everything, but, you know, I'm a Lutheran. This kind of means that uh, if, if, like, my, my archbishops and, like, from everywhere around the planet Earth of all, of all the Protestant denominations came together and declared that, you know, you know what? The Lutheran way of doing things is an anathema and you're all heretics and you're all doomed. Or something. That is like telling to the common peasant that, um, no, 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 the way you have been doing this and praising the Lord for centuries now, yeah, that means you go to hell now. And all you love also go to hell now unless you convert to our very specific way of praising the Lord, which obviously, uh, which obviously is um, <clears throat> not very amazing. By the way, a side effect of all this condemnation was the fact that in a way they condemned the very history of the Orthodox Church in Russia and all of their traditions, and uh, kind of at this point that also weakened the theory that depicted Moscow as the third Rome. You know, they had this messianic theory that, you know, the Moscow has picked up the mantle from Constantinople, became the third Rome, and the, the second coming of Christ would happen there. And now, you know, they had positioned themselves as the guardians and, you know, forebearers of the orthodoxy, but now they just seem to be a bunch of guys who have made a bunch of mistakes and condemned a bunch of their own serfs and peasants to death and eternal suffering in hell. Well, uh, at least that's fun. Anyway, Patriarch and Tsar decide to carry out the reforms nonetheless. And, you know, well, uh, obviously, um, obviously this was a more political thing than a religious one, because Tsar Alexis, by this point, had won the Russian-Polish War, where he conquered the West Russian provinces and Ukraine, and at one point he kind of developed these strong ambitions of becoming the liberator of the Orthodox areas, and he wanted to go to war with the Ottomans with this. So also, uh, also the role of the Near East patriarchs, by the way, who were, who actively supported the idea of Russian czar, were were is kind of also mentioned in historical texts over here because um, they also suggested at one point that this patriarch Nikon could become the new patriarch of Constantinople, because, you know, these Near Eastern patriarchs, they're living under the Ottoman rule, which is Muslim, and uh, let's just say they are not the most tolerant men on the planet Earth. So, um, yeah, it's all about the idea of, you know, let's just unify the rights so when you guys come and conquer everything, so that, you know, we would have um a bit less discussions about about what's going on here.
Now, the thing that's really important here is that what exactly were the changes? And obviously, if I, if we could kind of stack them together, it would take volumes of books. But uh, the old believers, and especially uh, the ones in Latvia from whom I gained this information, they present the most crucial changes of everything uh, like this. For example, uh, in, in the new ways, you know, you spell the name of Jesus with Isus. It's Isus uh, in short, but it's uh, basically spelled with two two eyes in the beginning to put it on harder. It's Isus. Uh, the final letter is the Miakiznak, the one that makes the letter before it kind of softer. The old believers originally spelled it just Isus. Uh, you know, uh, the Christians have their creeds, and so, uh, according to the new practice, Jesus is <clears throat> begotten, not, ba- not made, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. While in the old practice, it was begotten, but not made, and in the Holy Spirit, the true Lord and giver of life. Th- those two words there. And one of the more famous signs that uh, kind of differentiate the Orthodox people from the old believer people is the fact that um, under the Orthodox, the current Orthodox practices, you you know you make the sign of the cross with two fingers, which you join with your like your index finger and in your your middle finger, and you join them with your thumb, and like with these three fingers, you make the sign of the cross. While the old believers believe that was just two fingers, pointer finger straight, middle finger slightly bent, thumb doesn't even go into this. So old believers made their sign with the cross with two fingers essentially, and the orthodox made it with three, which is the mostly known differentiation here. And also the um, the amount of prosphora, which is essentially a small loaf of leavened bread, which is used in, in, in Orthodox Christian and Greek Catholic liturgies, which is kind of this offering made into temple, and, and but in Orthodox Christianity it kind of means the the, the bread which is offered in the Eucharist. It, it's a weird, complex thing, but essentially Orthodox people have five of them, and the old believers have seven. Also, in church in church processions, the Orthodox people of the modern day walk counterclockwise, while the old believers were kind of walk clockwise. And you know, in the liturgy, they also say this "Alleluia, alleluia speech," you know, which ends uh, ends the sermon and, and other religious ceremonies. And in the in the new beliefs, they say "Alleluia" three times: "Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia, Glory to Thee, O God." But in the old practice, they only said it twice. Alleluia, alleluia, glory to thee, God. Now, obviously, obviously, this, these are the most important, like, six differences there. And, uh, you know, people of today, uh, especially Christians, might look at these things as like, well, like, really, who, who gives a uh, crap? But honestly, uh, at, at this point in history, in the 17th century, uh, these faithful of the people faithful saw these rituals and dogmas basically as a strongly interconnected as these rituals represented what it, what was truth to them also uh, the fact that uh, the russian tsar together with the patriarch imposed the reforms by uh, hanging the people who didn't agree they were extremely oppressive 
and they didn't even talk with the subject people, they just, you know, whip them, lash them, hang them, sh chopped off their heads, chopped off their arms, and essentially tortured them and put them in prison. Yeah, that also didn't really help, because, you know, when somebody declares everything that you have been hol holding as the ultimate truth, because, you know, these people weren't literate for the most part, and this was all they had from their cultural perspective, and when everything you known, you've known from the culture and everything that you've been basically taught to be right and correct and sacred and you perceive these very rituals to be sacred now now that you've you've been told by the government that you are all basically terribly evil people who are all gonna go to hell unless you repent and then when you kind of are confused by this you the some guys just come over and whip you into submission and you know chop off the heads of a couple of your friends and send a couple of them to siberia yeah that really doesn't um doesn't really kind of introduce this enthusiasm for reform there. In addition to this, by the way, uh, where changes often were kind of made at random in the liturgical sacred texts. Uh, for example, whenever the old books read uh, Christ or Christos, uh, the Nikons, Petrarch Nikons, kind of, you know, his assistants, uh, substituted the Son. And whenever they read the Son they substituted Christ. And it's kind of weird. And another thing is that wherever the books kind of read church, Patriarch Nikon's assistant and he himself, he just put temple in its place and and changed it in places. Basically, they swapped the son with the Christ, son with Christ and Christ with son, swapping them over, and they did the same with church and the temple. So they, so that really didn't didn't help with with this uh, with this confusion thing. Now, not to say that. So obviously, these old believers escaped to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and specifically to the Lithuanian parts of it. And a lot of them came to Latvian parts. And right now, we have this huge old believers denomination here. But for the most part, they just kind of, you know, tried to run away from Russia. And they weren't unified in any way or form. They they don't have a hierarchy of church, and they don't um, they don't have any kind of organized thing. Uh, they just they just are. They are these people who still hold these old ways against the reform, and they've spread around a lot of places, and. They, they were also kind of hurt by the communists, obviously. But, you know, it's, it's kind of weird that they just ran away and wanted to live in peace. And they also have a lot of these denominations there, and they live mostly in isolated villages. And um, the weirdest thing is... They're really kind of Amish, like, they live a very simple life. They don't have strict rules about avoiding electricity or anything. Well, at least, well, some of their, some of their, uh, some of their denominations do. But they, they live a simple life, so to speak. I don't even know how to explain this. You, you, I, I'll probably uh, give a link to some Vice documentary there. But they live a simple life. The for the most part, the only books in their homes are Bibles written in very old Russian language. 
in ancient dialects and they dress in these old-timey 16th, 17th century clothes. They want to live as simple as possible. Now, some of them obviously can work like, you know, on a combine somewhere and they're farmers. They're very self-sufficient communities. Like I said, very, very, very reminiscent to the Amish, except, you know, an old believer wouldn't say no to electricity. He would just, you know, very, he would he would think a lot about whether or not he or his family needs it, but then they can also like for example go and work in factories, but they like to live in their communes and stuff. So they just basically escaped everywhere, but but they're they're known for their diligence and their general peacefulness. They are not aggressive in any way or form. But the thing is, they exist to this day, and due to the fact that they're essentially. Kind of like, not exactly, but kind of like the Orthodox Amish, they've gotten a bit of, you know, fame, I suppose, everywhere, because whenever they show up, something, some some truly weird stories happen. And before I go to these uh, stories, which are mostly described in my American sources, because, like I said, weirdly enough, in this subject, you guys in English speaking world have gathered a lot of more information than in the Russian-speaking world, because, seriously, uh, imagine this, if if you're, like, Baptist churches, or Methodist churches, or, or Lutheran churches, or Catholic churches, imagine if, if they would just declare that the Amish are heretics, that they would all go to hell, and, you know, would treat them as the enemies of the state. Well, that is what the Orthodox Church does to these old believers. Even though they're kind of a bit more modern than the Amish, they are, they're they're okay with some technological advance. It's complicated, and I'm I'm not that educated in these matters. But yeah, they they're they're quite much oppressed in modern day Russia, and there's not a lot of them there. They're everywhere else, like in the neighboring countries, and some of them are in Alaska. But uh, what happens here is that they also they're, they're one of the more persecuted religious communities here, especially since when I worked in the Ludza newspaper. One of the stories was the fact that we around Ludza, which was near the Russian border had this old believer graveyard, which apparently was a government land. It was, it was an old graveyard. It was where it was taken care of, yes, but, but the, the local municipality didn't consider it to be a graveyard because the old believers weren't registered there and they had some, some troubles with the paperwork. So a local businessman just, you know, bought the graveyard to build his own mansion on it. The problem is, you know, it wasn't exactly legal because it turns out the old believers had, you know, saved up their documents from the early 1990s and they went to court with this. And, uh, yeah, I had to write an article about this new businessman just not waiting until the court's decision. And he just bulldozed, bulldozed the Orthodox, uh, like the old, these old believer graveyard. And just, you know, he dug up the graves, dumped some other soil in there, just, just cracked everything and started to build his mansion there. Even though the court hadn't made his decision yet, because he said, well, he had purchased it. And, you know, they, they have these old weird names and they are, kind of, in the modern eyes at least, they seem to be weird people, but um, when you hear stories like this, then uh, then you understand that, you know, may- maybe maybe it is kind of my job to speak about them out, as I'm not orthodox and I'm not an old believer and I don't really understand these guys, but they certainly have a place in the world and I don't believe that if you would ever spot one on the street, that you should... You should uh, you should kind of bulldoze his graveyard and everything. Well, for starters, they, like I said, live primitive lives, and their men never shave, and, like, they just don't shave. And their women, they have to wear these uh, scarves over their heads. Kind of like Muslims, but not not exactly, but they have these, these scarves over their heads. 
So that's one thing that, that spots them out, and they wear these old-timey clothes. So it's a bit of a tragic story there, but let us move on. A bit of cheerfulness here. So, when we think cheerfulness, the first thing that pops in our minds is, of course, Siberia. Now, I have to explain something about Siberia. See, it goes from the Ural Mountains to the Pacific. And from the north of Russia to Mongolia. It is about 5 million square miles of complete nothingness, as from Russia's 147 million population, about um, about 10 million people live there, and the other 127 million live in the European part. And the thing is, those few million that live in the vastness of Siberia mostly live in the larger cities in the region, because Siberia basically has all of the Russia's natural resources. But outside of those few cities that they have there in Siberia, basically in the wilderness only a couple of thousand people live. No, really, in, in all this all this crazy thing. Essentially, it's bears, wolves, oil, uh, oil, uranium, iron, gulags, it's a couple of people outside... Yeah, it's not a nice place, it's an extremely vast place, and a cold one. The thing is, the summers there are really short. Extremely short, really. Because it stops snowing there in May. And the snow returns in September. So everything's frozen. So, kind of, there are quite a few warm days there. And it's just open for a couple of months, for the most part. Of course, not in the southern part that much, but most of Siberia is really cold and frozen for all the years, for all the year. And the thing is, that those few months is where the prospectors go there. Because, you know, they go there from the air. You can see everything from the air using airplanes. Because... All this vastness would just um, just stop any exploration on foot because there are no roads there. It is just cold and nothing and dark and you know it's it's literally Siberia. Like every <laughs> Siberia is the one thing about Russia. If you if you imagine a desert of taiga, which is endless and humongous, then that's that. So. Siberia, being the source of most of Russia's oil and mineral resources, uh, like, every place of that, even the most distant parts, have been, like, overflown by oil prospectors and surveyors and everything, and, and they're, they're going to some, some camps where they extract all the situation. It's basically, they look for stuff. And so, this happened in the Soviet era, too. And I'm going to tell you one of the weirdest stories that I have heard, which was famous in the Soviet era, even though it wasn't much written about, but uh, something special happened during the Siberian summer of 1978. And this comes from the S- Smithsonian article. See, a helicopter, which was sent to find a safe spot to land a party of geologists, who were obviously prospecting for oil and mineral resources, uh, this helicopter was apparently skimming the tree line of like a hundred or so miles from the Mongolian border, when apparently uh, it just happened to drop into kind of a wooden valley of an unnamed tributary of the Abakan, 
basically kind of this tributary of this river because it's unnamed because there are so many of them. And it was in, it was in a valley whose like walls were narrow and the valley's sides were kind of very close to vertical in some places. And the skinny pine and birch trees, they were like swaying in the rotary's downdraft and there was basically no chance of, of finding a spot to sit the aircraft down. It was just crazy. But these guys just just uh, prospecting there and the pilot was just looking through this situation here and he saw like a, a weird clearing which obviously wasn't on any map and it just shouldn't be there. It was 6,000 feet up a mountainside and was wedged between the pine and larch and, and it was basically just clutched in there. And everyone was confused about this. So they flew over a couple of times, very confused, and, you know, they decided at one point that, you know, this looks like some place where p- people live for some reason. It was a garden there, and, and the garden must have been there, like, for a while now. And this was crazy, because this mountain was more than 150 miles from the nearest settlement, in a spot that had never been really explored, and the local Komi authorities had, like, zero idea that anyone could possibly live there. So, the four scientists, just, you know, who were sent into this district to prospect for iron ore, well, they were told about what the pilots saw, and, and they, they, really, they really got worried. And uh, writer Vasily Peskov, who made notes about the situation, he noted that <clears throat> it is less dangerous to run across a wild animal than a straggler. So, that was creepy. But instead of, like, waiting at their own, like, temp base, they decided to investigate. And these guys were led by a geologist named Galina Pismenskaya. And they, quote, chose a fine day and put gifts into our packs for our prospective friends. Though, just to be sure, uh, she also recalled that uh, she did check the pistol that was at her side. So these four guys, they just scramble up the mountain and they're heading for the spot pinpointed by the pellets and, uh, yeah, they do see some human activity going on there. There's there's a path, there's some stuff, there are, there have been logs laid across some streams, and, and there's a small shed over there, and, and they have, like, containers of, of cut-up dried potatoes there. And then, I'm quoting Pismenskaya here, she said, quote, Beside a stream there was a dwelling. Blackened by time and rain, the hut was piled up on all sides with tiger rubbish. Bark, poles, blanks. If it hadn't been for a window the size of my backpack pocket, it would have been hard to believe that people lived there. But they did, no doubt about it. Our arrival had been noticed, as we could see. The low door creaked, and the figure of a very old man emerged into the light of day straight out of a fairy tale. Barefoot. Wearing a patched and repatched shirt made of sacking. He wore trousers of the same material, also in patches, and had an uncombed beard. His hair was disheveled. He looked frightened and was very attentive. We had to say something, so I began. <clears throat> Greetings, grandfather. We've come to visit. The old man did not reply immediately. Finally, we heard, we heard a soft, uncertain voice. Well, since you have traveled this far, you might as well come in. And apparently, apparently, they were like really stunned about what they saw, because what, what they saw was something like straight from the Middle Ages. Like, this this dwelling was, was just jury-rigged together from, like, whatever random scrap, and it was in total not much more than a burrow. <clears throat> Quote, 
a low suit blackened log kennel that was called as a cellar with a floor consisting of potato peel and pine nut shells. And it was just a single room there. And it was cramped, it was musty, and it was like really filthy. It was propped up by sagging joists and uh, it was a home of uh, five people. Quote, The silence was suddenly broken by sobs and lamentations. Only then did we see the the silhouettes of two women. One was in hysterics praying, This is for our sins, our sins. The other, keeping behind a post, sank slowly to the floor. The light from the little window fell on her wide, terrified eyes, and we realized we had to get out of there as quickly as possible. So led by Pimenskaya, this lady, these these geologists, they kind of backed up and and they, they retreated to a spot a few yards away where they kind of, you know, they took out some of their, like, conserves and everything, some provisions and began to eat. And about, after about a half an hour, the door of the cabin, like, creaked open and the old man and, like, his two daughters just came out to see them. They were no longer hysterical and though still they were kind of frightened, they were curious too. And these these people just just approached and they sat down with their visitors, but they rejected everything they were offered, like jam and tea and bread. With the mother, we are not allowed that. And when this Bismenskaya uh, asked, "Well, have you ever eaten bread?" the old man answered, "I have, but they have not. They have never seen it." Well, at least they can understand what the old man was saying, apparently, by this point. Because the daughters, as recorded here, spoke a, <clears throat> quote, language distorted by a lifetime of isolation. When the sisters talked to each other, it sounded like a slow, blurred cooing. So, yeah, but this this was just the first time when they were they were met by outside people. And sooner sooner they were just soon enough they were also visited by a bunch of you know other other folks of the Soviet era because you know it's really interesting to find someone someone living there. And uh, after a while, they just found out the full study of this whole family. So the old guy's name was Karpelikov. And yeah, he was, like you probably guessed, an old believer. So, he personally remembered that, you know, as, as being taught by his parents, that, you know, they had been persecuted by, by Peter the Great. And Likov apparently had talked to people about it as, as kind of, you know, Kind of like it would happen just very recently. For him, Peter the Great was a personal enemy and, uh, <clears throat> quote, the Antichrist in human form. A, uh, <clears throat> a point that he insisted had been amply proved by Tsar's campaign to modernize Russia by forcibly chopping, chopping off the beards of Christians. But all of these situations was kind of, you know, also messed up together and associated with, with the recent issues there. So, this carp dude, he was also prone to complain in the same breath about a merchant who would refuse to make a gift of 26 poods of potatoes to the old believers sometime around 1900. This is kind of crazy. But the things, apparently, obviously, had only gotten, like, really terrible for the Likov family when the Bolsheviks, with their nice institution of state atheism, took power. So, under the Soviets, these isolated old believer communities that had fled to Siberia to escape this persecution, which had been put upon them previously, yeah, they began to retreat even further from civilization. So, during the purges, like, in, in during our, our purges made by our nice comrade Stalin, 
with Christianity itself kind of under assault there, a communist patrol had shot Likov's brother on the outskirts of their village while Likov knelt working beside him. So, he did the natural response. He took, took his family and bolted straight into the forest. That was in 1936. And back then, there were only four Likovs. Karp, his wife Akulina, a son who was named apparently Savin, who was nine, and Natalia, who was only two. So they took their possessions and, you know, some seeds for planting, and they just, you know, went into Siberia. They were building themselves a succession of, like, these fruit huts. But at one point, they just, uh, yeah, appeared there in this middle of lateral nowhere. And two more children had been born in the wild. Dimitri in 1940 and Agafia in 1943. And uh, none of them, none of them at this point, had ever seen a human being who wasn't a member of their family. And everything that these guys knew of the outside world, they had learned entirely from their parents' studies. And uh, as the Russian journalist Vasily Peskov noted, the family's principal entertainment was for everyone to recount their dreams. The lick of children, apparently, they knew there were places called cities where humans lived crammed together in tall buildings. They had heard there were other countries than Russia, but such concepts were like no more than abstractions to them. Their only reading matter was prayer books and an ancient family Bible. Akulina had used the Gospels to teach their children to read and write using sharpened birch sticks dipped into honeysuckle juice as pen and ink. When Agafia was shown a picture of a horse, she recognized it from her mother's Bible studies, and uh, she she, uh, excitedly told her dad, Look, Papa, a steed. But it's kind of crazy. If this isolation is, is hard to comprehend for anyone, it's like 1978, it's not that that crazy. Their their lives were still extremely harsh, and uh, that, that, that wasn't as terrible to understand for the Soviet people. Traveling to this lake of Homestead on foot was literally impossible, even with the help, like, with, with boating along this Abakan River. And Peskov upon his first visit to Liskovs, who would later appoint himself as kind of a, this chief chronicler, this historian, noted that <clears throat> we traversed 250 kilometers without seeing a single human dwelling. And this isolation had uh, made their survival in this wilderness basically almost impossible. They were obviously dependent just, just on their own stuff, and uh, the, these Likovs basically struggled to replace the few things they had brought into Taiga with them. They had made the fa- they had made birch uh, bark galoshes in place of shoes, and their clothes were patched and repatched until they fell apart. And then they were replaced with hemp cloth grown from with hemp cloth, which is grown from seeds. The Likovs had carried a crude spinning wheel and, and kind of and crazy enough the components of a loom into the taiga with them, and uh, moving these from place to place as they gradually kind of went further on was was just must have been insane. But even with that, they had no technology for replacing metal. A couple of kettles had served them well for many years, 
but when the rust finally overcame them, the only replacement they could fashion came from birch bark. Since these could not be placed in a fire, it became far harder to cook. By the time the Likovs were discovered, their staple diet was potato patties mixed with ground rye and hemp seeds. And it's kind of weird. Peskov uh, makes you understand that this whole taiga thing did offer some things, because, quote, beside the dwelling ran a clear cold stream. Stands of larch, spruce, pine, and birch yielded all that anyone could take. Bilberries and raspberries were close to hand, firewood as well, and pine nuts fell right on the roof. But Liskovs lived permanently on the edge of famine. It was not until the late 1950s when Dmitri reached manhood that they first trapped animals for their meat and skins. Lacking guns and even bows, they could only hunt by like really digging traps or pursuing prey across the mountains until the animals collapsed from exhaustion. And apparently this Dmitri had built up astonishing endurance and like he could hunt barefoot in winter, sometimes returning to the hunt after several days having slept in the open in 40 degrees of frost. This is just just crazy. Even though mostly they didn't have any meat and, you know, their their diet with they ate gradually became more monotonous. Wild animals apparently had destroyed their crop of carrots and Agafia recall, recalled the late 1950s as the hungry years, where she said that they ate the rowanberry leaf. They eat roots, grass, mushrooms, potato tops and bark. They were hungry all the time. Every year they held a council to decide whether to eat everything up or leave some for seed. So, obviously, as famine being this ever-present danger in this situation was difficult. And apparently in 1961 it had snowed even in June. And the hard frost had killed everything that they had grown in their garden, and by spring the family had been reduced to eating shoes and bark. Akuyana chose uh, to, ch- to see that her children eat something, and she didn't eat it herself. And that year she died of starvation. The rest of the family were saved by um, by what is recalled as a miracle. A single grain of rice sprouted in their pea patch. The Likovs put a fence around this shoot and guarded zealously day and night to keep off mice and squirrels, and at harvest time the solitary spike yielded 18 grains, and from this they painstakingly rebuilt their rye crop. Because as the Soviet geologists, they, you know, they, they moved closer and they investigated, and they got to know the Likov family, and uh, they realized that they had underestimated their intelligence and abilities, because uh, each of these family members had, like, distinct personalities. Old Karp was usually delighted by the latest innovations that the scientists brought up from their camp, and uh, though he steadfastly refused to believe that man had set foot on the moon, he adapted swiftly to the idea of satellites. The Likovs had noticed them as early as 1950s, when the stars began to go quickly across the sky, and Karp himself conceived the theory to explain this. People have thought something up and are sending out fires that are very like stars. Which was, well, kind of true. And what amazed him most of all, which this historian Peskov records, was a transparent cellophane package. Lord, what have they thought up? It is glass, but it crumples. And Karp held grimly to his status as the head of his family, although he was well into his 80s. His eldest child, Stavin, dealt with this by casting himself as the family's unbending arbiter in matters of religion. 
He was strong of faith, but a harsh man, his own father said of him. And Carp seems to have worried about what would happen to his family after he died of having to control. Certainly, the the uh, the eldest son would have encountered little resistance from Natalia, who would always like would be struggling to replace her mother as, as a cook and nurse and doing everything. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Do younger children on the other hand, they were kind of more approachable and more open to innovation there. Peskov again writes, fanaticism was not terribly marked in the Gothia. Peskov, and in time, apparently, Peskov had come to realize that the youngest of the Likovs had a sense of irony and, you know, could poke fun at herself. Agafia's usual voice, apparently, because she had a, a sing-song voice, as is written here in my sources, I don't really know what that means, but she had, like, stretched simple words into polysyllables. Uh, this convinced some of her visitors that she was slow-witted. In fact, she was, like, really intelligent, and she took charge of a difficult task in a family that possessed no calendars or of keeping track of time. She thought nothing of hard work, either excavating a new cellar by hand ladle late in the fall and working on by the moonlight when the sun had set. And asked by this astonished Peskov whether she was not frightened to be out alone in the wilderness after dark, she replied, Well, what would be out there to hunt me? And of all the Likovs, though, the geologist's favorite was Dmitri. He was an outdoors man, dude, and apparently he knew everything about Taiga. And he was the most curious and kind of perhaps the most forward-looking member of the family, and he had built the family stove, and he had built also the birch bark buckets that they had used to store food, and it was also Dmitri who had, like, spent days hand-cutting and hand-planing each log the Likovs felled. And... This is no surprise that he was also the most encaptured by the scientist technology. Once relations had improved to the point that the Likovs could be persuaded to visit the Soviet's camp downstream, he spent many hours in its little sawmill marveling at how easy a circular saw and lathes could finish wood. It's not hard to figure, Peskov wrote. The log that took Dmitri a day or two to plane was transformed into handsome, ev- into handsome even boards before his eyes. Dmitri felt the boards with his palm and said, Kalikov fought a long and losing battle with himself to keep all this modernity at bay. When they first got to know the geologists, the family would accept only a single gift. Salt. Living without it for, like, four decades, Karp said had been like true torture. Over time, however, they began to take more. They welcomed the assistance of their special friend among the geologists, a driller named Yofrey Sedov, who spent most of his spare time helping them to plant and harvest crops. They took knives, forks, handles, grain... And eventually even pen and paper and electric torch. Most of these innovations were only grudgingly acknowledged by the sin of television, which they encountered that the geologist's camp, quote, proved irresistible to them. On their rare appearances, they would invariably sit down and watch. 
Karp sat directly in front of the screen. Agafia watched poking her head from behind the door. She tried to pray away her, her transgression immediately, whispering, crossing herself. The old man prayed afterwards, diligently, and in one fell swoop. Perhaps the saddest aspect of the Liskov's strange study was the rapidity with which the family went into decline after they re-established contact with the outside world. In the fall of 1981, three of the four children followed their mother to the grave within days of one another. According to Peskov, their deaths were not, as might have been expected, the result of exposure to diseases to which they had no immunity. But both Savin and Natalia suffered from kidney failure, most likely the result of a harsh diet. Dmitri died of pneumonia, which might have begun as an infection he acquired from his new friends. His death shook the geologists, who tried desperately to save him. They offered to call in a helicopter and have him evacuated to the hospital, but Dmitri, in extremists, would abandon neither his family nor the religion he has practiced all his life. We are not allowed that, he whispered just before he died. A man lives for howsoever God grants. When all three Likovs had been buried, geologists attempted to talk Karp and Agafi into leaving the forest and returning with, to be with relatives who had survived the persecutions of the purge years and who still lived in the same old villages. But neither of the survivors would hear of it. They rebuilt their, their old cabin but stayed close to their old home. Karp Likov died in his sleep on February 16, 27 years to the day after his wife Akulina. Agafia buried him in the mountain slopes with the help of the geologists, then turned and headed back to her home. The Lord would provide and she would stay, she said, as indeed she has. And a quarter of a century later, now in her seventies herself, well, this child of the taiga still lives there, alone and high above the abaca. And uh, let's just, let's just uh, have a quote of Joffre, this dude who was befriending them, on a day of her father's funeral. Quote, I looked back to wave Hagafia. She was standing by the river break like a statue. She wasn't crying. She nodded. Go on, go on. We went another kilometer, and I looked back. She was still standing there. And this seems kind of crazy. As I was like researching the situation, I understood that um, there was more. For one, <laughs> the guys from Vice almost didn't publish their story about the situation as the Smithsonian had published it before, but they flew there. They flew there once again. In 2013, these guys from Vice, which is one of the weirdest documentary sites ever and really cool, they flew to Siberia to find Agafia and to catch the world up to speed on her life. So, the guys from Vice actually went there. And as they write uh, that uh, she lives more than 150 miles from civilization, and um, they explain their experiences of getting there as <clears throat> navigating seemingly endless onion-like layers of Putin's government approval, including getting past various park officials who dubiously claimed jurisdiction over the taiga to track her down. In the, tum in the summer, the journalists were told that uh, she could be reached via a seven-day canoe trip. In the winter, the only way to get to her was by helicopter. Considering the hardship of her daily existence, the journalists apparently thought that it is only proper to visit her in the most toughest time of the year. When they arrived, Agafia was waiting for them outside her cabin, like a sweet granny who was expecting visits from her relatives. This is now a nature reserve. Right now, well, at least it was in 2013, 
and um, it was named the Likov territory in honor of her family. And her cabin sits atop a buff near the swiftly flowing Erinat River, which has gotten the name since uh, the Smithsonian article. And apparently, she was, is extremely nimble and healthy. Her property now includes several cabins and smaller buildings for goats, chickens, supplies, and preserved food, as well as garden and steep hill behind the main dwelling. But the garden obviously was covered in snow during the visit of Weiss, as it's, you know, Siberia. And, throughout the years, with some help from friends and admirers around, she has built up her property from this one-room shack. And she has about, like, dozens of cats now. So, after after the guys gave her, and guess what, this is the awesome part, after the journalists gave her a goat and a chicken that uh, they had brought as gifts, uh, the, the guys interviewed Agafia. And, you know, the most obvious question was what happened with her since her father died. And she responded that, um, when he died, I had nobody left to help me or to rely on. I got firewood myself. And, you know, just like many other folks who live in Russia these days, the pensioners, she receives a government pension, but is, well, mostly self-sufficient. She's cooking, she's foraging, and she's fishing. And, you know, she obviously complains about everyday life getting more and more difficult as she becomes older. <clears throat> Quote, It's not easy to cut hay and take care of my goats. Last summer a bear came and was vandalizing around here while I was hiding inside. He grabbed a bag of my flour and trampled down my carrots. I dug out a hole and the bear got trapped in it. So now she has a shotgun to fight off local wildlife. She's, however, not entirely alone. Remember that Yerofei, who was the last guy who spoke with her? Yeah, apparently he now lives there, because I don't know many other Yerofei's Sedovs who have connections with the Likov family, but apparently Yerofei stayed there. And he, <laughs> this also is confirmed as the article says that he apparently initially had come here to work there as an oil prospector and lived about 10 miles away with other geologists, but uh, he apparently got fired from that job for reasons that are um, not really clear and that he didn't comment upon. But uh, he returned to the city, where he somehow ended up with gangrene and lost his leg. When a doctor told him that moving back to the clean waters of the taiga might help his health, he set up shop down the hill from Mogafia, on the banks of the river, where he has lived for the past 16 years. Yerofei told the journalist that he had primarily came to the taiga because he wanted to help Agafia, who had, like, basically been alone, you know, as they are. And, you know, he has a peg leg now, and his motivation wasn't very realistic. But uh, Agafia told a different story there. Quote, In the beginning he was helping me out with the goats. He got firewood. Now he doesn't do that anymore. I ended up helping Yerofei with firewood for two winters. He cannot even pre-cut firewood in for himself in the winter. How can he help me? I have been helping him for these 16 years. I plant potatoes for him. I bring him firewood. 16 years and he completely depends on me. Yerofei is a waste. Nobody needs him. He is not a helper. He needs to be helped. What? Now, the, the, then that, this also is another another dark twist on an already dark story, because uh, Yerofei was the last person who saw her back then in the 80s, and uh, apparently their relationship isn't very clear, uh, as Agafia states that, quote, There were two bad accidents. Who knows what was on his mind? He committed one sin after another. He was threatening me. 
but that's about it. Agafia doesn't go into detail, and Yerafei also doesn't doesn't point anything out. It's hard to tell if Agafia's inscrutable but ominous comments are hinting here at something deadly serious, or just, you know, are the product of two bickering senior citizens who've gone a bit crazy with cabin fever. Now, whatever happens, Agafi and Yerofei still sometimes get together at Yerofei's place to listen to the radio. That's their only regular contact with the outside world now. <clears throat> Quote, I listen to the news about crime and explosions, Agafia says. It's scary. What's wrong with those people who make suicidal public explosions? Now, and even though she now owns, like, a few things from, like, our world, it's kind of weird, Agafia does have, like, a very strong faith. Like her immediate family and her long-dead uncle, uh, the one who was killed by the commies back when, thank you, Papa Stalin, Agafia is an old believer. She learned to read by studying the Bible, and she still wakes up to pray every morning. Now, occasionally she reads old believer newspapers, depending on how often her sporadic visitors deliver them. <laughs> one of the more peculiar notions, that, uh, according to the journalist she has picked up from these papers, is that barcodes are the marks of the devil. It is the stamp of the Antichrist, she said. People bring me bags of seeds with barcodes on them. I take the seeds out and burn the bags right away and then plant the seeds. The Antichrist stamp will bring the end to the world, she said. God won't save everyone. The only thing Agafi hates as much as barcodes, by the way, are cities. Which, perhaps surprisingly, she's well enough acquainted with now. See, it, what it turns out is that in the early 80s, when uh, Vasily Peskov's series of articles about L the Linkovs turned the family into national phenomenon, and the problem is getting my hands on these Vasily Peskov's series of articles is a really hard thing to do, and most of them were covered in the Smithsonian. Uh, so, sorry guys. But yeah, after these articles in the 80s, during the perestroika, she received an invitation from the Soviet government to travel throughout the, co the country for the first time. And, uh, you know, just before she did, just before she fa her father died, and, uh, you know, much to her father's chagrin, because, you know, he really just died shortly after her return, she accepted the offer and, for a month, traveled the nation by helicopter, train, plane, and car. And she saw, like, novel things for her, which were really novel at the time, like, Cows, horses, shops, cities, and money. And later returned to her father. And she was really grappling with uh, her father about how to explain... Uh, explain uh, the Chernobyl catastrophe to her. And, you know, since then, since she returned... And, like, she really had to explain Chernobyl to her dad. Despite pressures from the Russian authorities over the years to move to a city or a town... Which she hasn't done... She's only left home about five times, primarily to visit relatives she had never met before, and to receive medical treatment. And she told Vice that drinking anything but the water from her Edina River, like, made her ill, and city air made her sick too. So, final quote from Agafia, It's scary out there. You can't breathe. There are cars everywhere. There is no clean air. Each car that passes by leaves so many toxins in the air. You have no other option but to stay at home. And it's kind of... kind of touching, don't you think? <laughs> really crazy. Because... for us, the people over here on this other side, it would be much more scarier to just live outside there, um, in, in the middle of literal nowhere, 
in Siberia, nonetheless, living through extreme poverty just for your faith. But for her, apparently, it was the cars and us who scares. And it's just another point that um, that shows that you really are afraid of what you don't know. You're afraid of the unknown, and I'm pretty sure that we can find many ways how that that influences us daily if we think about it. But talking about the unknown and what we encounter daily, and this one's going to be especially interesting for you Americans, because this is about a very weird stranger amongst your midst. I'm going to be talking about a 17th century community living in uh, modern-day Alaska. Again, an article from 2013, this time by The Atlantic here. And uh, they're talking about the Yakunian clan. It is about guys who gather together and they pray and they do things and now they're quite a large community there. In 1968, they started building a Russian Orthodox village called Nikolaevsk in an isolated corner of Alaska's Kenai Peninsula. And yeah, they're obviously all believers. They traveled more than 20,000 miles over five centuries in the search for the perfect place to protect their traditions from the outside influences, as the article states here. Now, as usual, as as kind of reported about them, the women wear teal, pink, red, and purple satin dresses, all made with the same basic design that covers their bodies down to their ankles. Married women cover their hair with scarves that match their color for gowns. Father Nikolai, ah, Nikolai, has a full red beard that reaches the top of his round belly and his hair is in a ponytail that runs down his back over the traditional Russian skirt. And, uh, it's kind of interesting, because these guys also marry, they're, they're not like the traditional Orthodox priests or Catholic priests, they marry, so this Father Nikolai has a son, Vasily Yakunin, and apparently most people of the time thought that he would become the next priest in the community. Nikolaevsk instituted their free, first priest in 1983 after centuries of living without clergy, which created a rift that divides the community to this day, because for the most part, actually, uh, the old believers don't have priests as such. And this is a completely different, completely different uh, thing, because we're going to be talking about completely different life uh, from the lady living in Siberia. From the article, <clears throat> Vasily slouches in a leather chair playing a space-shooting video game on his iPad, while the rest of the guests crowd around the lunch table laughing and passing around a plate of jam-filled pastries for dessert. The only person over 21 who is exempt for the occasional shots of tequila is Yeforisina Yakunin, who is four months pregnant with Father Yakunin's 15th grandchild. I've stopped believing and stopped going to church and observing the Orthodox way of life, Father Nikolai says. <clears throat> if we stopped believing and stopped going to church and observing the Orthodox way of life, Father Nikolai says, we would cease to exist. And on the journey back time that touches some of the most remote corners of the globe, a generation ago Oregon, before that Brazil, China and Siberia, the Yakunian clan emerges out of history as a family in search of a way to live without compromise. But even here, as the article states, it's impossible to resist change forever. Change again. But what kind of a change? I mean, would you would you imagine 
those people in Siberia using an iPad. Now, I'm not judging anyone, it's just that they are the most remote guys out there and they have strict rules and they dress in simple clothing and they're all following sort of, sort of, <laughs> the same religion, but it is kind of weird if you think about it. And uh, this Father Nikolai from this, this also from this parish here in Alaska, also states uh, commenting on the Patriarch Nikon's reforms. He said about the reform is that <clears throat> quote what happened was it was forced on people. You know, people were forced to accept it, and if there should be no questions at all, if anybody brought up a question, he was beat. His fingers were cut off or something like that. Tongues cut out. And. Uh, this is also commented in this article by Jack Coleman, the professor of Russian studies at Stanford. For us moderns, it's hard to understand, but it's rather like Shakespeare. The magic is there, the purity is there, you don't change a poem into prose without losing the magic of it. And for a Russian Orthodox peasant, the way you make the sign of the cross? Well, as far as anyone knew, that was the way God taught them to do it. And their father and grandfather and ancestors got to heaven because they practiced the faith as they were taught it. You don't rephrase Shakespeare. So, that is why they were so much opposed to this. And these guys, Yakunians, they were forced, again, to leave the fam leave Siberia and leave Russia after the Communist Revolution in the beginning of the century. And uh, another story was the fact that their grandfather was arrested another victim of the violence there. They left their, fa their village in Siberia in a hurry, Father Nicolati calls. They walked only at night and followed the compass by striking matches every so often. The journey took place in the middle of winter. Father Nikolai is sure of this because they crossed a frozen river into Manchuria. And they stayed in China for the longest. Apparently, these guys had lived near a city called Harbin until just after the end of World War II when the Japanese occupation ended. They adapted to their environment there and made the living hunting elk for their antlers, capturing baby tigers for zoos, and killing man-eating tigers. Talk about badass right there, but uh, still. 40 years in Siberia? Uh, I don't know. Quote, My father in his lifetime shot 36 tigers, Father Nikolai says with a smile, holding up a sepia-toned photograph of five bearded Russians and one Chinese man standing over a tiger corpse. But once the Japanese left China in 1949, the Chinese government told all foreigners to leave the country. The old believers didn't have documentation to defend their residency. We didn't have anything. Akati Kalugin, a member of the community in today in Alaska, recalls, We don't have any book certificates. We was like ghosts. Kalugin doesn't remember if he was born in China or Russia, though he remembers that he spent his childhood in Manchuria. So when China gave all foreigners five years to leave the country, the old believers had a choice. Go back to Russia, where they would be punished as deserters from communists, or try their luck in another country. And obviously, Papa Stalin instantly sent anyone who returned to gulags. Great. Kalugin says, recalling a time when the community says the Soviet army crossed into Chinese territory to round up old believers. <clears throat> My father was taken away when I was two years old. They loaded up them in tra the train and took them back to Russia. Kalugin didn't see his father again for 50 years when they were re reunited in Alaska. And with the Cold War kind of setting in place, many countries just wouldn't take religious refugees at all. 
So, so now, the old believers are scattered across the globe into Turkey, Argentina, and Australia, while the Yakunians and the Kalugans, they formed part of a group that went to Brazil. And just outside of Sao Paulo, Father Nikola Yakunin's family and Akati Kalugin worked as subsistence farmers living in three makeshift Russian Orthodox villages in a rural community. And while Brazil was the first place they lived where they could practice their faith freely, it was apparently hard to make a living in South America. Hey, uh, I know I have Brazilian listeners and uh, hi guys, and if you have any comments and you maybe know something about the old believers and also Latvian and Baptists, which emigrated to Brazil in 1930s, and I know that there are some guys, explorers of her whom some rivers have been called. Uh, yeah, please leave that in the comment section, but uh, later on. <clears throat> uh, from Kalugans. We had two or three cows, I think. We milked the cows and made cream and butter and go down and sell that. It was a meager existence. In addition to this tropical climate, which is unusual for people who have lived in Siberia previously, old believers found it difficult to adapt to the new calendar, which dictates when their holy days are. Because, obviously, <clears throat> quote from the Father Nikolai, Brazil is on the other side of the equator, and so Christmas over there is in the middle of the summer. Father Nikolai says with a chuckle, hot. But he was only nine when they left Brazil. Uh, Akati Kalugin was already raising a family by this. With more than one mouth to feed, he had kind of a hard time eking out a living there and keeping his family together. So one day, his kids were playing outside when he heard his children screaming. He ran out to find his infant son foaming at the mouth. Quote, It was a village in Brazil. He was crawling everywhere and he saw something and he grabbed it. Kids can be kids. A snake or a scorpion bit him in the mouth, just three marks in the lower lip. That's how I lost the first one. Now, this time, when the Kalugin family decided to move again, it was not to escape religious persecution, but for better economic opportunities. So, in the middle of the Cold War, then-Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy offered them asylum. So, some of these old believers settled in New Jersey, but many ended up in Woodburn, Oregon, like, hoping to finally find a place where to stay. So, again, from Father Nikolai. My brother was telling me just recently that in the first day in Oregon, there was work already available for them. Him and dad went and worked. They got paid the same day in cash. And they went and they bought a sack of flour, a sack of potatoes. And dad said, yep, we can live here. We can make a living here. But after only a few years, the elders began to fear that the younger generation was becoming too Americanized, drinking too much and hanging out to the wrong crowd. From Kalugin again, quote, some of my family ended up working in the forest, logging and planting trees and working for different companies. Then we all realized that it's not going to last long in Oregon because the city started growing too fast. Older folks realized they have to go somewhere more remote. So, with the help from the Tolstoy Foundation, five families continued their migration up to a small piece of land just outside the anchor point on the Kenai Peninsula. There, they lived in tents for a few couple of months, while everyone pitched in to build the first few homes and buildings. In the beginning, the community tried to live a subsistence lifestyle, harvesting their own vegetables. There was a gate to the community that reinforced the self-isolation they were seeking. But, um, now... Now, according to this article of writing of this article in 2013, this Nikolaevsk apparently kind of remains a village, a small village in Alaska. Like, it's about 350 people. Eligible bachelors must leave the tiny village to look for a bride. Yeah, this <laughs> this is kind of um, interesting. 
My wife, we met out at parties in Oregon, Vasily says. A lot of us younger men that are single, we like to go to Oregon to look for a bride because there is more of a chance to find a woman, a bride in Oregon, and we have a family there, so it made it a lot easier. Now, because of fishing and their adaptability, the Yakunins live quite comfortably in Alaska. They, they're able to afford large boats and trucks. Though Vasily Yakunin says that his father and uncle knew nothing about fishing when they came to Alaska, because... There's not that much of a sea in Siberia. <laughs> they, the Russian fishing fleet today over there has reputation for aggressive tactics. And, um, yeah, Americans apparently in surrounding communities are sharing stories about the Russian fleet setting nets too close to other boats, ignoring calls from the Coast Guard, and only responding to help if it comes from the Russian. Now, that is not to say, apparently, that uh, they haven't struggled among themselves. The community didn't have a priest when the Yakunin clan arrived in Alaska in 1970. They had lived without clergy since the reforms in the Russian Orthodox Church. Quote, If you set your mind back to the 1660s, and if you reject the official church, you cannot accept newly ordained priests, because the only people who can ordain them are the bishops of the church. And no bishops in the 17th century went over to the old belief. That's Professor Coleman again. So for centuries, while the old believers traveled the globe, adapting and preserving... They all generally agreed to accept that there were no, no longer any genuine priests. But, with their new freedom in the States, this community had the means to look for a priest, and Father Nikolai says they were longing for a leader. So in 1983, they traveled to Romania, found a bishop, and deemed him worthy to ordain the group's first new priest in over 300 years. This created a huge controversy, another split, says Father Nikolai within their small society. The new priest and his followers built a traditional onion-domed church across the street from the more humble priestless church in Nikolaevsk, where those suspicious of the blasphemous ordaining continued to congregate. In 1985, the priestless church burned to the ground, leaving nothing but ash. And Kalugin, who belonged to the priestless group, grows so animated every time he talks about the incident that he kind of begins to lose his uh, already weak English, or uh, the article tells me that. Quote, They started that the fire started from the attic, from electrical. Guess what? They don't have any electrical in the church. How the hell does it start? There was no electrical. So this is a question mark. Who started the fire? And after the fire, a couple of families apparently moved away from Nikolaevs to form new priestless villages in even more isolated parts of the Kenai Peninsula. The only road to Kachemak Selo is a steep switchback that is covered in ice in the winter and slippery with mud in the summer. Kalugin states that apparently it used to be that they coming in by the boat or helicopter when they start out this village here. Once safely down this switchback, this Kachemak Sielo is still about half a mile down a beach that is pushed up against the mountain. In the winter, mattress-sized pieces of clear ice tinted with neon blue wash up on the beach littering the entrance to Kachimaxello with more obstacles. And uh, yeah, apparently this article and other articles about this community in Alaska, because uh, even though the old believers are persecuted uh, quite often amongst the Russian Orthodox community, the Russians seem to like to remind people that yes, yes, there are ethnic Russians living in America now. And uh, that is kind of weird, because a lot of these people still... Also, just don't speak English, but I guess it's pretty normal for you there in America. Anyway, in their communities, outsiders are obviously not welcome. The priestless village is quieter and more traditional than Nikolaevsk. 
There are there are two no trespassing signs pinned side by side on trees at the entrance to the village. It's kind of way, way quieter. No stores, no restaurants, just, you know, a school, prayer house, a few dozen homes. I think from an old believer point of view, the world is a hostile place. Their experience, their history, their betrayal, as they say it, again from Coleman. They have no idea where we are coming from, what our ideas are, and why we might be curious about them. Comparing them to the Amish, which I did earlier in the show, Coleman says that more conservative priestless communities may make it impossible for outsiders to witness how they live their lives. Vasily Yakunin, son of Father Nikolai, states that, in my opinion, I think the priestless community do a lot better job, because of the fact they don't like outsiders coming in, affecting their way of life, introducing more English and stuff like that. And though Kachimaxilo and Nikolaevsk apparently have uh, theological disagreements today, they have been through the same struggles trying to preserve the old belief and traditional way of life. The challenge for both of them is to hold on to traditions as they have been carried across the planet. But this is the end of the line there for them. It's it's the last guy, I don't know. It's it's like the Siberia of America. And there's literally nowhere else to go. And American modernization is still steeping in. Just like, just like back in Siberia with shotguns and cows and radio. It seems that no matter how far these people run, they can't really escape the, fo- the, the future. And this is straight from the article. <clears throat> Bea Klauch, the coach of the girls' basketball team at Nikolaev's K-12 school, has seen these changes in the 23 years she has been in there. The parents no longer deny their girls to go to higher education, she says. They encourage that. But the problem is we're sending the children out to get educated, and they go off and sometimes they don't return to build their homes here. Enrollment in the village school constantly drops every year. Slight signs of assimilation had begun even in the community's shorter stops elsewhere in the globe, for example in Brazil. In Russian, beans is frazol, Vasily says. But we say fion. That is the Portuguese word for beans. I have no idea if that is true or if I pronounce it right. In a century after they left Siberia, many old believers still speak Slavonic, an old peasant dialect that dates back hundreds of years. The four to five long church service in Nikolaevsk is still completely in Slavonic, and in many homes, the elders only speak Slavonic, and children are scolded when they slip into English in the wrong setting. But, for the first time in this Nikolaevsk, the majority of the younger generation speaks English as their first language. While many of them can speak Slavonic conversationally, it's only a matter of time before language dies out completely. At Nikolaevsk Elementary School, there technically was, still a Russian language class, and the Russian government was really proud of that a while ago. And, um, it's kind of interesting, as their teacher basically teaches old believer children who can't speak Russian by this point. And she has, she is very passionate about the subject, but it's apparently getting harder and harder, and I don't know how that's in 2017, especially with all the political situation, but Apparently, it's harder and harder to get kids interested in the situation. Their teacher, Dorval, says in broken English, I'm trying to get the kids interested, interested to learn the language and keep it going. We have the program after the sixth grade, and that is where it stops. We don't have it through the high school, but some of them, like my daughters, are talking Russian online in Rosetta Stone. And this also endangers Slavonic church services. 
Father Nikolai states that, quote, I'm looking down the line, maybe not in my lifetime, but whoever is going to be the priest after me is going to have to really consider incorporating more English into the services. But despite this, despite this inevitable threat of modernization, Nikolaevsk maintains a lot of its traditions and still finds time to celebrate. Every December the 19th, the village celebrates its patron saint, Nick, because obviously they also had to shift around the dates because they used the old, the old, old calendar, during a big community-wide feast following a five-hour-long church service. All the women cover their heads and wear long satin gowns. The children are corralled at their own table in the back while the teenage boys sit together. Obviously, young women sit at one table, all the Russian women have their own section. Everyone has their own section in the Old Believers Church. And, yeah, it's a rowdy scene filled with chatter and laughter. Then it's about crazy. And Father Nikolai, like, apparently ends this celebration in front of the journalists by just stating that no compromise any place, but that is how my father's forefathers were, Father Nikolai says. And we've kept that tradition. Now I'll let you decide about the differences about these strange old believers and how they live. They, I know that they here in Latvia they live in these these communities themselves. They have um, they they don't very much go to town. Uh, I have seen some of them take bus to Latgala where I lived, and in Latvia uh, the old believer women still wear these very plain dresses and they cover their heads in scarves and the the men grow beards. And I have been to an office of them which was they have a church here in Riga uh, like a parish and the church like is rumored to have a completely golden roof because they brought a lot of uh, a lot of stuff with them and, and as they don't really spend money on material wealth they donate they donate a lot of income to the church so uh we have this this huge church of theirs and I've seen people coming in, going out, but I, I haven't, I really have to admit I haven't spoken with any old believers in my life except when I was working with the journalists, so I can't tell you about the Riga, Riga parishes, but um, it's weird. It's weird how these people actually have managed to, to avoid persecution, but I guess it goes to their, their desire for isolation, their desire to just be completely left alone. and Like, we, we know about other crazy communities who commit mass suicides, like um, the Heaven's Gate dudes or whatever, but, but it's still interesting to imagine there are people who would just gladly leave everything and just go somewhere. And then they then they are afraid of losing themselves a bit. I don't know, I'm, I'm not an old believer, but I am trying not to get too Americanized over here in this show as well. But it's kind of weird, and uh, it just stuck into my head after after I spoke with uh, the old believers in Lutz, when then they live in like basically they have these kind of they live in the middle of nowhere in the middle of a forest, and they have built their own like wooden buildings, and they're completely self sufficient. Now and then they they receive some money from the government, uh, and then now and then they buy stuff and they do some some day work for other people, but they live very secluded over here as well, and. And they just kind of struck my heart, really. And I thought, hey, I'm pretty sure that this is one of the most obscure and weird parts of the eastern border of the whole Eastern Europe that you might want to hear about. But yeah, let's end up on a happy note, because they're still out there, and they might, not all of them at least, they might not have iPhones, but they don't need iPhones. They... they they most likely probably would just like to be left alone.
and uh, yeah, if you see some 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 of them, maybe if you spot them, although that might be very rare, please be respectful. These people have gone through enough, and uh, yeah, that's about it. Just glad you enjoyed the show, and uh, next time we'll return to Stalin, but. But I don't even know why I did this. This is just one of the weirdest things that I really wanted to tell, to, wanted to tell you about. So until next time, hope you like the show. До свидания, товарищ. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.